The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. China has become one of the largest economic powers and is increasingly imposing itself over the rest of the world. Its presence in world affairs is begging us to ask, what can we expect from China? And how will Australia navigate this changing world? Jeremy Barmay, Linda Javen and Vicky Shu came together at Antidote 2022 to discuss the threats and opportunities for Australia in this new world order. Hosted by Richard McGregor, this talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Thank you. My name's Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute. Uh, I'd first like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the traditional custodians of the country we're meeting on today and pay our respects to elders past and present. Now, the headline for today's event is, What Would China Do? The subtext was rather different. It says, with the US in decline, China on the rise, what should Australia do? We're going to look at the first bit first, China, before we sort of disappear into the rabbit hole of uh, bilateral relations. And we are not retooling uh, today's event like just about everything else after um, recent events. So no jokes we agreed about the opium war or anything like that. Um, now, we all always say before such events that we have a distinguished panel. This time, I really mean it. Uh, they've got very long CVs. I'll try and shorten them a little bit. In the middle, Jeremy Barmay, who's probably had more influence on the study of Chinese in Australia than anyone else, professor, author, founder of the Australian Centre on China in the World at the ANU and self-described as a politically displaced Aussie in Kiwistan. So welcome to Ikakistan, Jeremy, as we uh, <laughs> joked before. Uh, Linda Javen, uh, far left, is the author of 12 books, fiction, non-fiction, the latest being The Shortest History of China. I had to get that plug in. Uh, any of you who watched uh, the whole new wave of uh, Chinese films in the 1980s and 90s were probably reading uh, Linda's subtitles, because she's also a specialist in sub literary translator specialising in subtitling. And finally, Vicky Xu, journalist and writer, an analyst uh, on and off at Aspie in Canberra, where she co-authored a pioneering, pioneering report about Xinjiang, and also perhaps the bravest among us on the stage, because her willingness to stand up for her views attracts vicious trolling online, and of course the exceptionally unwelcome attention of uh, Chinese security uh, agencies. Now, one of the favourite talking points of Australian politicians these days is Australia has changed... So, sorry, Australia hasn't changed, China has changed. <coughs> Jeremy, to you first. On the second part of that, I mean, has China changed um, or has the Communist Party in China simply become more powerful? Thank you, Richard, for that. It's... Um, very hard to answer. I went to China when I was 20 years old in 1974, and I had a uh, thorough Maoist education at um, Mao-era universities. I was there when the great leader died, and thereafter, during what happened after that. 
from my personal point of view, the, uh, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party system in China has fun not fundamentally changed since 1979. So I am very much out of keeping with the whole, oh, China under Xi Jinping has got harsher, more assertive, crueler, more dominant. Yes, in certain ways, yes, but the fundamentals of what is happening were set out by Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues, the part and parcel of the Chinese version of what in Russia we call perestroika and glasnost. In China, political reform, though it was played and toyed with, was basically abandoned in the early 1980s, and since then has never been seriously entertained again. And this road to, um, you could call it revivalism of Maoist-style politics and behaviors in China under Xi Jinping was, from my point of view, always an inevitability, in particular because of generational change. And the generation in charge of power, in charge in China today, the whole Politburo, the seven-member Politburo, they're all cultural revolution products. They're all um, people who were trained during the Cultural Revolution, and many people aren't aware that the Cultural Revolution was one of the many aspects of Mao's aspiration was to create a revolutionary successor generation that would be hardened by civil war and violence during the Cultural Revolution and from which this new generation or second and third generations of hardened rulers would emerge. And sadly, that's exactly what has happened. Xi Jinping was first identified in 1983, I remember it well, as being a potential future ruler, as with a whole echelon of people in charge now. And the factionism has ended up where it is in, in a certain way. But added to all of that, the sort of institutional and historical contingencies, is the fact that you also have a particular individual, Xi Jinping and his colleagues, who believe that they have a messianic mission a mission not only to create China and bring it back to a global preeminence, or rather give it, achieve, help it achieve global preeminence, but in particular to um, pursue the types of quasi-religious political ideals of the Communist Party itself as it was formulated, as they were formulated in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And it's very boring, all that history, 100 years, and all that type of stuff. But this matters if you want to understand how the Chinese communists and this generation appreciate so themselves, these things are crucial. How they see this last 40 years is also important. Um, and so, yes, it's harsher, it seems more robust and um, harder to deal with, but it's not a great surprise to those of us who've been dealing with China for our whole adult lives. It's um, disappointing, perhaps. Vicky, what about you? You grew up in China. Yeah. Uh, you spent recent years in Australia. Uh, has China changed, um, or are we simply finally understanding what the Communist Party uh, is really like? Uh, I think China has changed on and quite fundamentally in a lot of ways as well. You know, I, I agree with Richard that a lot of the bad things that we have been, you know, recently and increasingly noticing um, have always been there. You know, for example, the fundamental political structure and the fundamental um, uh, secrecy and, um, you know, the, the whole political system hasn't change, but there are aspects of it. For example, uh, what China calls the uh, legal and political, the Zhengfa Xitong, that system, you know, Xi Jinping himself has been purging that system and trying to ensure the system's loyalty to him personally and to the party. Um, and we, since 2012, um, many aspects in this country, you know, for example, the situation in Xinjiang, religious persecution, um, 
academic freedom, freedom of speech, a lot of things has been deteriorating, deteriorating. Um, you know, they have never been good, but then now they're worse. Um, and then again, the persecution of journalists, of people who dare to speak. So with the, you know, prolonged deterioration from around 2012 to today, now we're seeing people literally fleeing. You know, one of the latest trends that people talk the most about on the Chinese internet um, is called uh, Ren. Um, so the Chinese character Ren is spelled R-U-N, and we all know what that means. So that's what a lot of Chinese people, entrepreneurs, um, you know, engineers, um, or even business people are thinking about these days. Um, some of the most successful Chinese entrepreneurs who have become, you know, the richest people in China are also fleeing. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think things are a lot, lot worse, and I think um, it's not just a political talking point in Australia that you know China has changed, Australia hasn't changed, or you know I think Australia, in terms of the, the bilateral relationship, has mostly been reacting to uh, the very fast deterioration um, in China. I guess one of the problems with run or run is that you can might even be able to leave your building in China these days, let alone flee the country. Um, Linda, I think it was fair to say, as I said earlier, that you're not a natural hawk, um, but you've lived through in China in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I mean, do you think China has changed? Um, or is it the... Uh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I fall between both <laughs> Jeremy and Vicky in the sense that I understand from history um, that the Communist Party has not fundamentally changed, um, but it does change its style and the way that it manages society. And so in the 1980s, um, partly because they were the Communist Party was dealing with so many issues within itself and also trying to figure out how to revive the nation's economy, um, it allowed for a growing uh, amount of, it tolerated, it didn't encourage, but it tolerated quite a lot of um, intellectual discussion and back and forth. And you had, you even had a TV show, um, which Jeremy and I wrote about, or we translated bits from for our 1992 book, um, uh, New Ghost Soul Dreams, um, which was called Hushang River Elegy, and it questioned things like the way the, the, the Chinese people were taught to revere things like the Great Wall and the symbolism of the Yellow River and all of this kind of thing. Um, so you could question that. And what's happened now is China, uh, under Xi Jinping, the Communist Party is shutting down the kind of debate that was tolerated in the 1980s. But of course, the Communist Party's um, lessons that it drew from the 1980s were um, basically there are two big lessons. One was 1989 when people got quite carried away with those freedoms and decided that they could stream onto the, the streets and demand first, not democracy, and this is often forgotten, but an end to corruption, which they saw as so extreme at that time. It was nothing compared to the corruption today, but it was it was glaring um, when people were still talking about getting a TV set or getting a, a, a better bicycle, you know, and, and, and there are some people driving around in Mercedes Benzes. So one of the first slogans was, sell the Benzes, save the nation. Um, and then this rolled on as the, their speech was repressed and, and things were happening. It became 
uh, pro-democracy, pro-freedom of expression. That was one lesson. The Communist Party never wants to see that again. So they began a patriotic education campaign in the early 90s. Second lesson of the 80s was Gorbachev and the fact that Glasnost uh, opened up the country's history and people in the Soviet Union began to go, oh, right, we can talk about what happened in the Stalin era, we can find out what happened. And that the Communist Party in China is absolutely convinced that Glasnost led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and therefore we can never have anything approaching Glasnost transparency. So that's kind of the way that goes. I don't think I answered the Hawk question. But... That's, that's all right. We're, <laughs> we're filling in the blanks. Jeremy, I'm gonna, you're going to comment on that, but I'm going to ask you something that I was going to ask you anyway and you'll do both things. I mean, sh sticking with Xi Jinping, you know, he made himself the chair. He's made himself the chair of all these leading groups. These are leading internal groups, which are policy-making groups. Uh, they used to be spread around. And I think you wrote recently he's, in effect, carried out a rolling coup against the civilian government. And most people reading that would say, hang on, isn't it the same thing? So I want you to talk about that, but you want to respond to Linda as well. Well, they saw, yeah, they the two issues of intermesh. So I said that many of the fundamental um, issues facing the Communist Party as part and parcel of its, the reforms it launched in the late 1970s f tried to deal with the issue of how, does, how do we manage also the evolution of a society that is going through not only a demographic and a social and cultural transformation, but one that's also being transformed by economic change and the rise of new classes and social forces and so on and so forth. And the party has battled with these issues back and forth. Fundamentally, I don't believe it's changed its stance, but it has debated them over the years. And in fact, internally in China today, there are still numerous debates. If you're interested in some of the debates, there's a great website in English called Reading the China Dream, which tries to catalogue and translate a lot of these types of internal discussions. That's not over, the issues aren't resolved. But um, when Xi Jinping got into power, he felt that the, this new wave of economic transformation brought about by China joining the World Trade Organization in 2001, and by the further debate about where do we as a polity that is relatively hidebound, one-party state that's dealing with the Gorbachev dilemma, dealing with these unruly economic forces, where do we go from here? And the debate in the 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, this period after the Olympics and before Xi Jinping came to power, the debate, and it was quite open in China, was do we as a nation try and fulfill the aims of the original Chinese revolution of 1912, which saw the end to dynastic power and the creation of a Republic of China that was set on developing a modern, democratic, um, pro-capitalist, global nation. And that we've seen develop in Taiwan. On the mainland, they debated whether we as a nation should go in that direction as well, because the social and political as well as economic forces mean that we have to confront the issues of how do we de develop and mature. Now, Xi Jinping and his colleagues decided that the types of reforms that had been launched from the late 70s that had led to the separation of the party from the state, like church and state, and allowed a civil society to gradually grow up and mature, to allow China to gradually become a modern globalized nation with all of the behaviors and, and, and things essential to being a modern nation in terms of rule of law, a relative openness of information, equality of rights, and all these things. That 
it all moved in a certain direction and was leading to the types of social and political pressures that Xi Jinping, his colleagues said, felt would lead in the long run, not to disaster necessarily, but it would lead to the fall of the Communist Party and to the fact that they would no longer be able to marshal China in the direction they wanted China to go, which is to be a strong, modern, but preeminently global power, politically, economically, and, and culturally. And Xi Jinping, to unravel aspects of the reforms of the Dong era began to reintegrate the party and the state. And this is why I say over a period of time, 2013-14, he reintegrated the state by creating all of these little leading groups, little groups managing health and education, welfare and so on and so forth. And he made himself the chairman of each of these groups, 12 of them, in fact. And he then used these groups, which are headed by a party secretary with him as chairman, and he would then take over the functions of the state that are becoming stronger and stronger. And he effect um, in effect, he created he, what I call a slow rolling coup. He realigned party and state to reintegrate the whole and the, the two separate elements of the society into one. And I, at the time, in 2013, I called him the chairman of everything, the man who would dominate all. And he has a very particular vision. It's a historical, completely logical vision. And it's one that tries to integrate all these elements of radical egalitarianism and revolutionary impetus from the Mao era with all of the economic reforms and potentials to create China as a modern society at the same time. And it's not just some, this is not just some revanchist, radical, Xi Jinping dominant um, personality cult madness. It is part and parcel of a type of debate that has taken place in China actually over a hundred years of how do we turn a, a dynastic system that collapsed into a modern nation state and what type of politics and society do they want, do we want? And what they've chosen under the Communist Party is one that Western societies find completely and utterly invidious. And, um, and it's a real problem for everybody now. Um, Vicky, you've written a lot about Xinjiang. Uh, this week we had a report. Um, Xinjiang, of course, is uh, a mainly Muslim uh, Uyghur community, uh, about a million or so into re-education camps or so, mainly men, part of a stated anti-terrorism campaign. The UN, after much uh, uh, a big fight with the Chinese, finally produced their report in which they said it, um, the camps constituted international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. Now, China, of course, first denied these camps' existence and then they admitted them. They said the people had been... Uh, infected by ideological illness, which must seek inpatient treatment at a re-education hospital to clean the virus, cleanse the virus from their brain. Now, put Xinjiang into uh, context of uh, the Xi Jinping era. Uh, why is this happening? Why this overreaction to you know a small number of you know what we might call terrorist attacks? And so a little bit about, a little bit more context about Xinjiang and my research. And I have been reporting on Xinjiang from 2018 on first four newspapers, the ABC, the New York Times, and then um, me and my team at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, we spent two, three years looking into the specific specifics of Xinjiang, you know, why are there so many people being detained? Where are they detained? We were able to map out 380 detention facilities um, based on satellite imageries and um, 
uh, open source research, we were able to reveal there's a systematic forced labor scheme running out of Xinjiang into other parts of China and then implicating the global supply chains. Um, so why are why are Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities being targeted to such an extent in Xinjiang? Um, I think that's, you know, to put it very simply, because we're short on time, that's because the state is fundamentally insecure, and it's always seen Xinjiang and the Uyghurs to be a potential problem, to be able to potentially declare, declare independence, and, and just to be, in a, to be a general danger. And then there's some, there seems to be genuine belief from policymakers in Beijing that um, many Uyghurs could potentially be terrorists and cause terrorism-related problems on China's borders. But all that aside, I think the most interesting thing for me on, you know, by studying policymaking um, in Xinjiang is that it really mirrors what happened during um, previous political movements or campaigns, crackdowns in China, you know, from the Cultural Revolution to um, what we call Yanda, the um, strike hard campaign in, um, in the 80s. So that's, that happens when the state is paranoid about crimes or something else, and then um, it abandons the entire um, you know, judicial political process to prosecute or to send people to prison. And then the task of um, re-educating or disciplining people or punishing people becomes this, the decision of um, neighborhood committees or you know, village committees. So basically, um, if we translate that to an Australian context, that is your strata manager or your building manager can sentence you to a camp because you have unhealthy thoughts. And you know the crimes that people were being punished for included using the VPN to access the internet, using a WhatsApp, using a file sharing app, praying on, or just in general believing in the wrong things. So, um, but just to you know wrap it up on Xinjiang and to spend a little expand a little bit on the general conditions of the society. Um, what's wrong with Xinjiang is that this is you know campaign style governance, which is crazy even for China and only happened for a few times during the Cultural Revolution and you know that kind of thing. Um, and this type of governance is now being applied throughout China during COVID. You know, right as of now, China's still in the middle of COVID zero policy, which means there's lockdowns everywhere, mass testing, uh, long, long lines, uh, where I assume people would continue to infect each other. Uh, while you know the society is put on hold, production is put on hold, people don't go to work anymore, just testing, testing, testing. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a big shell instead of you know um, solid COVID policy. It's a big show that's put on for one person, the one person at the top who insists China would um, eliminate COVID, despite that even North Korea has moved on from this kind of policy months ago. Um, so that's the real madness for me. It is. Well, we've moved on from COVID zero in Sydney as well, thank God. Um, uh, Linda, what about on the cultural front? You know, Chinese people are very creative, very sinuous about getting around um, the obstacles of officialdom. They have to do that. I mean, are things really as bad as they look from the outside? The answer is 
Yes and no. I mean, I just want to add one thing to um, what Vicky was just saying. I may, some of you may, may have seen this in the news, but when an earthquake struck Chengdu um, over the last week, um, some people were blocked from leaving their shaking buildings because of COVID because they were, they were under lockdown and they were not supposed to leave their buildings and they were trying to leave buildings that were, that were shaking and they were prevented from doing so. And so one of the answers to your question is, um, you know, people do not stay quiet under those circumstances. Um, so this news got out. Why do we know about this in Sydney? Because Chinese people who were there are talking about it. And they get shut down pretty quickly if they're saying things the government doesn't want to hear. But Chinese Weibo, Chinese version of Twitter, um, is full of accounts that get that say things and then get shut down, or the algorithm simply is manipulated. Their algorithm, uh, our algorithm sends us the most sensational stuff. Their algorithm takes that sensational stuff and pushes it down to the bottom so that you don't see it again. So there's several ways of censorship. But the Chinese um, people themselves, of course, there's 1.4 billion people. That makes in any society, the percentage of people who would be incredibly creative and bright, is it's a huge number of people. And there's always, people are always testing the edges. There's a word in, there's a phrase in Chinese uh, called tabianqiu. Um, it's to uh, hit the edge of the ping pong table with your ball. So you kind of, you hit it there and it's still technically in, but it's almost unreturnable. And so that's a kind of a game that people in culture have been playing with the, with the Communist Party um, since, uh, pretty much since uh, reform, uh, the beginning of reform, when you could start to experiment a little bit. And the goal is to kind of make it so that you're not going to be slapped down, censored or arrested or anything, but you kind of, you're still in the game. Um, but I, as, as Richard said, I'm a subtitle translator and I've translated a number of movies that um, one of them in, in the 90s uh, was a beautiful movie by Tian Zhuangzhong called uh, Blue Kite, and he had to film with a with a with an illegal script. So he he had given them one script. He made it, uh, they, they caught him, they stopped the filming. Everybody took a deep breath, they finished the movie, um, and somehow got the print out to Tokyo, where they were doing post-production. I did the subtitling in Australia. Um, that, that doesn't happen now. I don't think that's, that's possible now. But I've subtitled a number of films that, you know, they push the boundaries. Some of them have, have not been shown. Um, one of them was because um, one of the actors was a Taiwan actor who said something that was interpreted as pro-Taiwan independence. Nothing to do with the film, which was a brilliant black comedy about sexual and love obsession, <laughs> but he was the star and therefore the whole project, bang. I've worked on other films where whole scenes had to be edited out because the actor had been caught smoking dope and therefore was not a moral exemplar, <laughs> like all actors are supposed to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, and there's all these ways of getting around, talking on the internet. I mean, Jeremy's website, ChinaHeritage.org, is such a great website. Net, Net sorry. ChinaHeritage.net. Right. Net. Um, has a recent example of this uh, where a panda um, called Sui Tsui um, <laughs> had a... Jade. 
Jade, yes, um, had a cub. And so what should we name the cub? You know, and obviously the answer is Pandemic Panda, but nobody came up with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so and people began coming up with names that played on the idea. Of, Jeremy, you can tell. Well, the, the, so the mummy panda was called Cui Cui, which means Jade. Um, and the word Cui in Chinese is made up of a number of elements. And two of the, one, and the, the top element is Xi, which is the same C as Xi Jinping. It's doubled over. And the bottom <laughs> element is the word zu, which means death, die. <laughs> and so all these people, encouraged by the People's Daily and Weibo and all these other official organizations, come up with a name for the new panda bear. What do you think it should be? And many people wrote in, thousands, actually 150,000 people, wrote in <laughs> immediately, within hours, and said, it should be called, why don't we just call it um, Cui Cui, little Xiao Cui Cui, meaning may Xi Jinping die soon. <laughs> And the, and the authorities took hours to say, wait a second, what have we done? <laughs> by, by which time, this, this, this is like on the 18th of August, so this is two weeks, three weeks ago, by which time the authorities, they, they'd lost control. It already got out, everybody knew it, and become a fine old joke. So it's stamped out and it's prevented, but people are coming up with this type Always, of thing. Always, I, I just constantly. Would, would add, those of us who have been involved with China, I've been involved with China since I was a teenager, so it's now... You know, 55 years of my and life. We met in 1981. <coughs> in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. And, um, <laughs> and those of us who've been involved in China with, with the Chinese world, the cultural, political, historical world of China that's informed our lives, been part of our lives, as well as all of our friends in China and elsewhere around the world. This is a moment when China should, as a global entity, a major political but also economic power, it should be enjoying a kind of reputation and global influence of incredible creativity and excitement. And instead, and it is on one level, but in, instead Xi Jinping, who's a very doer character indeed, it is, frustrates so much of the what one would call the native yeah. genius of the Chinese world. And for many of us, and most nearly all my Chinese friends, this is one of the great tragedies of, um, of human civilization at the moment. And it is a reality. There's so much brilliance and so much creativity out, in, out there. And there's so many rules that are, and so many fences that are put around it that it's just, it's tragic. Yeah. Everything was run by committee. Imagine that. Everything <laughs> by committee. Oh my God. So we're going to go into Australia before we get to questions. And I'm going to get a response from you all. And this is something obviously you cannot say in a few minutes, but you're going to have to. I mean, what do we make of the debate over really the last five years in Australia? It's noisy, but healthily democratic. Noisy and necessarily so. I mean, there's no nice way of pushing back against China. Uh, noisy, but dumb. Uh, or noisy but semi-racist. So, um, Vicky, I mean, you've got a good outsider's eye on this. Um, so I started reporting on Chinese um, influence or interference in Australia from around 2016, 2017, um, when I was a three-year-old immigrant to Australia. Um, and at the beginning of reporting on this topic, when I was giving the assignment to you know, dig into a Chinese undue influence in Australia, my first reaction was, this is racist, this is xenophobic. What have we ever done, you know, except for buying up some land? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the more
more I looked into it, the more I realized that there is a lot of Anjou influence. You know, the Chinese consulate has staged these massive protests uh, or counter protests trying to drown out Tibetan voices, or, you know, they have instructed Chinese nationals to physically attack Falun Gong members in a, on the soil of Australia. And, uh, you know, dissidents, advocates, um, scholars have been physically attacked, also, again, on Australian soil. So this kind of transnational repression and undue foreign <coughs> interference is a real problem. And, you know, we, begin to, we began to understand it from 2016, 2017. And um, by, you know, this year, last year, I think the vast majority <coughs> of the Australian public has had a pretty good idea. Um, and, you know, the fantastic Lowy poll has also demonstrated that, you know, the vast majority of Australians have now realized there is a problem here of undue influence. But on the other hand, what I have also observed is that the China topic and the China problem has long been um, kind of co-opted by conservative forces. Um, so, you know, and it's so tied to the liberal government and it's so tied to the Liberal Party's identity. So, you know, for myself, because I've worked in Canberra for a number of years and I've formed fantastic friendships with people um, across style in both parties. Um, but now with the new government, what I'm realizing is that, what I'm realizing is that a lot of labor politicians um, have not had the same level of knowledge or expertise, or willingness, or political courage, whatever you call it, to continue to pursue the China problem because there is this like ideological, un you know, they're un ideologically uncomfortable too, or that you know they missed the five, the first five years or ten years to uh, to fully understand this issue, and now I see a like you know hesitancy. I, I see hesitancy, 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 yeah, hesitancy. Um, in, in, in a lot of people in very important positions. So, yeah, uh, personally, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where Australia is really going, but I do hope that um, there would be more transparency in the future. So, you know, our security <coughs> intelligence organizations would be willing to share more uh, with the public about, you know, what they are investigating, what they've found. So far, I think a lack of transparency means that the general public, in, you know, including a lot of politicians, don't have, you know, the understanding that they need to, to get um, from all those people in the government with that kind of expertise. And then following that with the knowledge and being informed, we will be able to understand these issues better and we'll be able to separate, you know, um, criticizing China, criticizing the Chinese regime, wishing the death of the Chinese president, separate that from racism, you know, which, so I think that's a, that's a pretty fair first step. You've observed this from a, across the ditch, indeed. Um, it, it just reminds you of that this year marks, this year, March, this year marks 50 years exactly since I began formally studying Chinese. And I did so under a man at ANU, um, a professor under, at ANU called Pierre Rickmans, who's best, best known by his pen name, Simon Lays. And Pierre, among the many, many, many things that Pierre taught me, he later was my PhD supervisor as well, and the reason I ended up living in Australia back again, was that China confronts our humanity. 
on every single level. It both teaches and warns. And in, in engaging with the Chinese world, and it is a world, it's a world of meaning, it also generates meaning, and it's also a, a court of humanity. Um, it confronts us on every level of our understanding and engagement with being human. Um, the clash over China in recent years is one that um, reminds, me, reminds me of that, of what Pierre taught me all those years ago. It also builds on the fact that I established that centre at the ANU that you mentioned, the Australian Centre on China in the World, in 2010, um, as a result of the beginning of this crisis, which began, it began in 2008 and 9. You might remember 2008 9, there were all these debates over Rabia Kadir coming to visit Australia. About She's the Stern. head of a, a prominent Uyghur figure. Yeah, probably yeah, yeah. we figure um, Stern, who an Australian Chinese businessman who was arrested for so-called corrupt dealings, <coughs> and unrelated to a, a failed takeover bid involving Chinalco. Australia began this crisis began to unfold in 2009 in full in full voice, um, and what it has led to is that. Um, there's all these debates that, that Vicky mentioned and the, the things that um, Richard mentioned, but it has also led to Australians having to consider one of the long-term problems that takes us back to the founding of the relationship with the People's Republic in 1972, 50 years ago, that same year that I began studying Chinese, and that is the relationship with the United States of America and where Australia is vis-a-vis -vis this region, what its identity is and how it's going to deal with its own sense of self, geopolitics, and its involvement with the global world. And this is something that, as you know, it's touched on. The Conservatives have a particular view. Labour is, as he said, very diffident, and I think it's, it's caught. And the public has, has to face the same problems that we all faced and were aware of when I was a teenager, when I was 17 years old. And these are unresolved. Australia never resolved those issues. It's... it's Luckily, because of globalization, what's happened in, the, in recent decades, it's avoided having to debate and discuss these issues. And now we, like China, is straining to grow up, despite Xi Jinping's best efforts to infantilize the country. Australia, too, has to grow up. And it's going to be really hard. Mm. That's my Linda. Sense of um, yes, I, I, just to add to um, um, Vicky and Jeremy, uh, one of the problems with political influence in particular, is our own system. We need to reform our don political donations laws. We need to completely make it impossible for hidden donations, for big donations, for corporate donations, for anybody to buy influence with our political system. This is done in other democracies like I believe in Spain. You're not allowed to have political donations. The government gives the parties a different amount of money, you know, before the elections and and go for it. Um, we need to consider radical reform because a lot of the problems will be cut off at the root in terms of the political influence, I think, on our system. Um, in terms of uh, the Hawke thing, back to the first question, and America, it is really important. Hawke, the, the position of the Hawks, to me, is an ideological one, which which is a binary position. You're either for, you know, you're either righteously uh, warlike on China, like Peter Dutton, the drums of war, all that kind of thing, or you're just an appeaser and a panda hugger. And we have to grow up. <laughs> That's a ridiculous binary. It, it's, it's crazy. We also have to, um, uh, I think, think about how to engage with China intelligently and with 
our principles intact. And one of the things that I think has fallen apart a bit under the coalition is the, um, the notion of having multiple channels of communication open, to be engaging with China on many different levels. Now, there are, I don't, probably very few of you are aware, but um, uh, our friend Sue Travaskis up in Queensland, who studies, um, uh, she's, a PA, she's a, a professor uh, who does justice and policing and that kind of uh, topic about China. And, chi and Chinese police come over for training, you know, and now. for exchange. Yeah, like now. even now. And this is great because... But don't leak that huh? to the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> don't leak that to the newspapers. They just have to read her work. Oh, it's <laughs> reading an academic um. work. <laughs> but, you know, this is the kind of thing... And then we have people who are doing artistic projects, much less than before, I believe. But, you know, we have to have all of these channels. Now, I know uh, somebody who was doing business in China and who had good connections with the labor government. And he said to me, I've been given a message. This is at a time of great tension. And he said, I've been given a message that I have to get to the, to the government because this is the thing, like there's the big level of like Xi Jinping and and the, and Jolly, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Jolly Jen. Yeah, Jolly Jen and, uh, you know, the, the foreign affairs wolf warrior spokesman. These people shouting at China and uh, shouting at Australia and just really kind of shouting back. But underneath, you have to have so many levels where messages can can, can pass. And this businessman was not, was not able to get his message through because the coalition was so hostile to him as somebody associated with labor. This is a tragedy for us. We have, to, we have to correct that. One final point about the American thing is... Um, as I, an ex-American. As an ex-American, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, is recovering think, American. A recovering American, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's a 12-step program. <laughs> You're almost making me forget what it is. Is it when... Kevin Rudd went to China. Jeremy, this is, uh, of course, one of our national secrets unveiled here. Jeremy, <laughs> <laughs> you know that whole debate about the friend with arguments, the Zhengyo. So Jeremy was the one who, can I yeah. unmask you? He was the one who gave Kevin that uh, particular phrase, helped him put that into the big speech. Now, the Zhengyo is a friend with arguments. It comes from a Tang Dynasty emperor. You can read about it in my book on history, but you don't have to. Um, but... <laughs> Anyway, what it means is a friend who will speak truth to you, to the emperor. And, and I think that our... I actually agree with something that Hugh Wright, White wrote in his recent quarterly essay, which is that basically we go to America and we say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, you know, and, and that's it, and that's how we kind of deal with them. And I think we should be a jungyo to America. I think we should be... We should not be afraid, as we have been for years and years and years, to actually stand up and speak our truth, what we understand, to people who aren't, you know, on the same page. And this is really important because if we tie ourselves to America as we have in the past and we get another Trump or mini Trump or like Trump-like person... Um, we are going to be in big trouble if they decide that a nuclear war with China would be great fun. <laughs> on that note, let's uh, move on. The, uh, <laughs> the, um, the, one of the big slogans in China in the last two years is the East is rising, the West is declining. And by that they mean China is rising, the US is declining. Um, and I think a lot of what Hugh Wright writes, in fact, buys, buys that totally, like China's triumph is inevitable. Get used to it. 
Is the CCP's sense of urgency in projecting global power driven by a sense of imminent decline economically and demog demographically? Yep. So the decline of the West and the rise of the East was first spoken about in 1914, 15, 16. Oh, uh, Oswald okay. um, Spengler wrote a very famous book called The Decline of the West, which took off in China in 1918 and 19. And the debate about China inevitably rising has been going on for over 100 years. Um, just to give you some little bit of context. So Xi Jinping is repeating a debate that has been part and parcel of Chinese cultural contestation for a good century now. As most of the things he, he deals with, these are things with long, long histories. And, and not to discount the importance of what he's doing, but China is demographically transforming. It is entering what they call the middle income trap, where you have an aging population that has a, will over time uh, provide less of a tax base to support itself and fewer younger people going into the workforce to help um, renew the economy and develop <coughs> things and so on and so forth. So the government is always facing, because of the scale of things, facing these massive economic, demographic and political crises. So indeed, it has in its interest, it has in its interest trying to push its agenda rapidly forward. One of the reasons, you might not know, but Xi Jinping is in Chinese, often referred to as the the great accelerator, the man who's trying to push everything ahead. People also take that mean to, to mean that because of his policies, and he's often rather clumsy in his policies, he may well be accelerating the collapse of the Communist Party. Depends on how you, how you see things. But these are debates that take place in China constantly, and the government is very anxious to try and pursue its agenda as far as it can as long as it can, and it, it the government has officially uh, determined that America is in decline, and America might renew itself in years to come, but China must take advantage of that relative decline right now. And that is significant. The US may be in decline, but China may not be rising. I mean, it, it so might there's not be rising, of... exactly. But Vicky, I want to ask you that. The, <clears throat> and I'll say something mildly controversial. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, what would surprise them about China? I was at my old high school. And I said, well, the Communist Party is popular and Xi Jinping is popular. And when you think about it, if you've had 40, 50 years of economic growth and you control the propaganda department, you control the entire narrative that nearly everybody hears, it's not surprising. So, I mean, on that basis, I mean, do you think China is strong? Do you think the rise of China is inevitable? Um, and um, leaving aside the US, I mean, what's your sense of the strength of the system? So f from speaking from a personal level, you know, with all of my professional experiences, uh, not all of you know this, but I came to Australia uh, eight years ago straight from China. Uh, and when I first arrived here, I did not have any knowledge about Tiananmen Square, massacre crisis, whatever you call that. I was staunchly pro-China on, you know, I'm... I'm fairly confident that's how most of my peers growing up in China felt and still feel. Um, and um, after my work in journalism and policy has made me well known in China, I was uh, attacked by my own family and everyone who's ever known me and Chinese media, including state media, as the ultimate traitor. So, um, so based on all of that, my assessment of uh, how strong China is and its hold on its people, I think it's very strong. You know, despite that e the economy is kind of collapsing, there's a demographic problem, there are all kinds of problems, environmental problems, but still the, the faith that people have in the party is not just a result of propaganda, it's also a result of these people can't live 
without the party. Um, you know, my, my city, half of the people are on um, the party's payrolls, so are public servants. So, What city is that? If you, if you can say. Yes, I can say. Uh, it's a small industrial city in northwest China called Jiaoyuguan. It's on, on the western end of the Great Wall. Um, it's the, the whole city kind of relies on a state-owned um, steel factory. Mm. So, you know, half of the, <coughs> roughly half of the work, you know, people who are working work for the city, uh, the government, and then half of them work for the steel company, which is also the government. So, you know, if the Communist Party is collapsing, then all of these people wouldn't have a job. Then we would have to figure everything out from the scratch. And I think deep down there is a deep-seated fear from everybody. You know, so what happens when the Communist Party collapses? Are we going to go into war? Are we going to go into poverty? Um, nobody wants to deal with that many, that much change. So I think there's also that. And also, if anyone stands up to say, I want Xi Jinping to die, I want the party to collapse, I want this country to become democratic, that person would go to jail, and so are their family members would you know, fall under heavy, heavy surveillance. Um, so what do you do with that? Mm. Um, so I think that's the strength of the party. But at the same time, we must also remember people do have agency. Um, all of my female friends, um, when I used to be in contact with them, most of them say they don't want to give birth to their children in China. And this is because you know, these are college-educated um, women who are, you know, we have similar circumstances who, are, who can't afford to have babies outside. But that's another thing. With the demographic changes, you have a class of women educated who are unwilling to give birth in China. So what do you do with that? Yeah, you, that's in Hubei province, is it? No. The, the city, Hubei? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so your city, Gansu. Gansu. No, you're, you're, the city you were talking about, where you came from. Oh, the Hubei? city I came from is from Gansu. Oh, Gansu. Um, so okay, that's sorry. Next to Xinjiang, sorry. where the camps are. Okay, Linda, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I think um, to understand this this strange, what might seem like a strange compromise that people make <clears throat> with um, a regime that is often so punishing. Um, I think also you look back into Chinese history and what it teaches people and what they've learned about their own history, and it was in. It was about it was about 500 uh, BCE, more or less. Uh, Mencius um, talked about um, the cycles of chaos and order, and there is a sense that has been built into Chinese, just repeated and repeated and repeated, that if you don't have control, if you don't have order, you have chaos, and this is this is a. This is kind of baked into um, the mindset that a lot of people inherit from history. Another one is, and that's related, is a fear of division, as you were saying, civil war. Um, you know, that China has been, um, I believe, divided more than it has had dynasties. We often talk about hi history as a series of dynasties, but in fact, the times that China has been divided and 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 taken the structure of a, a lot of warring states, of, of states that have been at war with each other, um, or there have been mass famines, and there's been chaos and all that. That has also been um, a, a lesson, and it is a lesson that, well, you do need to hold it together, and, and we are this huge people. We are, we are 56 different uh, ethnicities, we are, you know, many different subcultures and provincial, uh, local cultures and so on. The only way you can hold it together is through strong rule. And this is, you know, whether you agree with that or not, it is part of the way that I think that it, it partly explains why people are willing to make certain compromises. 
Also, a lot of people <coughs> are not political thinking. We are, tend to be like a lot of people here are real, we think politically, because we live in a democracy, we have got all these debates going on all the time. And so we tend to form these, like what would be a better government? What would be a better, you know? And they don't have the same atmosphere. So a lot of my friends in China are very um, non-political. They don't talk about politics. That's because we're made to yeah, that Yeah, exactly, way. that's what I mean, yeah. We're deprived, that's yeah. because that's because not you don't natural. Have that. Exactly, so, so it's not like they, couldn't be political, but there's no real opportunity and therefore they're not, a lot of them just kind of, oh, you know, they're interested in the, the latest fashion or the latest play or the latest movie or the latest gossip or, you know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> so one question on Jeremy, and it's really goes to this question about uh, whether the Chinese party state is strong or weak. Uh, whether it's rising, whether it's going to be sustained. David V says, do, we, do you think it's possible that China could, could be released from authoritarianism in our lifetime? In other words, the sort of thing Linda was talking about and Vicky, could the system change there? Um, from the top, yes. So one of the, the, the real characteristics of the Xi Jinping era is this sense of return. Um, and many people talk about it in China. Chairman Mao famously said in the early 40s that China had worked out, finally, how to break free from this cycle of chaos and order. And he said that the answer, he said, and Xi Jinping quotes <laughs> this all the time, the answer is through democracy. Of course, it's Chinese people's democracy, and the democracy is determined by the Communist Party of China. But Xi Jinping and his colleagues, his previous predecessors, Hu Jintao, Jiang Lemin, and Deng Xiaoping, all claimed they'd broken out of the cycle of Chinese dynastic rise and fall, and that China could now progress nonstop to a better future, first a socialist, then a communist future. This is still the official Chinese line. What has happened under Xi Jinping, though, for all of that rhetoric, is the fact that he, by reinstituting um, really one-man rule, he's, it's one-man rule supported by the Politburo and the party generally, Everybody in 2018 when the party changed it, or 2017 when the party changed its own rules and regulations and the state changed its rules and regulations in 2018 to allow Xi Jinping perhaps to stay in power beyond 10 years, maybe for 15, 20, 25, 30, the vast majority of party members of the Central Committee um, and the Congress of China, the party Congress agreed to that. So what that means in in matter of fact, in terms of the longevity of the authoritarian system, is that Xi Jinping has recreated the very problems that have dogged China since the era of Chairman Mao. So by making himself not only a, perhaps a leader in perpetuity, a man with what I call terminal tenure, we're expecting in mid-October <laughs> he'll be given another five-year um, lease of life as party leader, he will probably want to stay either as leader or if influence over the party for the rest of his life. So presumably for another 20 to 30 years, because China has a longevity program. If you notice, no leader dies. And they have very good doctors at the Politburo level as well. Indeed. There's a, there's a, a formal program to extend the lives of Politburo members. The ultimate aim is 150 years. Mm. But at the moment, the aim is 100 years. So Xi Jinping could well be around until his 90s. Um, but he has thrown China as a civilization, as a, as a party state, as a modern nation, thrown it back into the, the realm of order and chaos. He has recreated the same problems every autocracy has, is that you have one leader, his life, 
his health, and his longevity determine the fate of his nation. So will China be an autocracy for the rest of, it will be for the rest of my life, I think. I've had cancer, so I probably won't last all that long. <laughs> but, I'm just practical. Um, but will he be in there for the rest of all of your lives? It's quite possible. Um, but what will happen after that? The, the reality is that this is everybody in China, everybody who's interested in politics asks that question, all the time. How well is he? Where's he appeared? What's he done? What is, what's he said? Has he burped or farted or thrown up? What is he doing? Because the whole fate of the nation now depends on one man. And that is, of course, an absurdity. It's an insult to, the China, to China's modern tradition, not to its traditional, its some um, ancient traditions. But it means that this radical autocracy can come to an end because it has a point. Biological attrition will resolve it. Xi Jinping will die. There will be a future. There are many other people contending for influence and power, not just for money, not just for political and, um, and uh, military power, but because they believe in better things. They believe in a better nation. And there are many of them. There are thousands of these people, all hiding away the, what they call the, Gor the Gorbachev syndrome. How many little Gorbachevs are hiding away? <laughs> we don't know. But this has been part and parcel of the Chinese debate now since Gorbachev appeared. Um, and many people have hoped, when Xi Jinping got into power, many people hoped that Xi Jinping would be the Gorbachev. That was the line. And yeah. Ten years ago, he will be a Gorbachev. I mean, not something... No, to be called China's Gorbachev in China is a, a kiss it, of death. It, it's a kiss of death. <laughs> yeah. But to go back, it, of course the autocracy won't last. China is this incredibly vibrant, relatively in terms of social and um, economic life, an incredibly modern, vibrant, global country with an incredibly literate population who are you know, given half a chance to show the genius of the, of the nation itself. So in that sense, I mean, one can easily indulge in what I call hopium, and that is that sort of that wonderful drug that gives us some possible optimistic scenario for the future. So we've got about three minutes left. You can see the countdown clock, Vicky. I want this. This is for you, I think. Um, how does the party view Chinese Australians? What do they believe the diaspora owes the motherland and, the, by consequence, the party? Um, I believe, and of course I can't read Chinese policymakers' minds, but uh, judging by what uh, the Chinese party has, has done, um, to Chinese Australians like myself, uh, which is intimidation, harassment, um, and a lot of expectations to talk up um, the president and his party. Um, so I think there's generally a sense of um, um, ownership over the Chinese, the Chinese diaspora population outside of China, and that's an incredibly dangerous thing because you know I'm speaking here today um, as a former Chinese citizen, and uh, I've had to, the, the opera has had to engage extra security to be here with me so that I can actually speak my mind without being physically attacked. And why? And that's because the Chinese government has repeatedly um, attacked individuals um, and organizations, even in foreign countries, not just Australia, but you know, the US, Canada. Um, schemes of transna transnational repression has been become more and more noticeable and pronounced uh, and just really difficult to ignore. Um, so under this kind of, you know, constant attacks and constant harassment, I, I do anticipate actually less and less Chinese people, you know, who, who can be incredibly 
knowledgeable on China and with lived experience on who can actually be contributing so much to the public debate, um, missing out on these opportunities to engage. Um, just, just because, you know, if you're a Chinese person, you have family back in China, you have friends back in China, how can you expect anyone to let go of all that and ignore the safety and um, health of, you know, their loved ones just for the sake of freedom of expression? That's almost a madness. Well, thank you for coming today, Vicky. I'm um, really glad you did, were able to make it. Jeremy and Linda, um, uh, thank you all for coming today. Much appreciated. Um, we have to finish there. Watch Talks from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.